Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. I only get nervous in this context because yeah. it's my voice and Man, my ideas. There's all we all have at least one thing that gets us super yeah. nervous. So I'm I'm turning my manuscript into the next book, oh and it's the same thing. I'm, like, I'm so nervous. So this is a helpful break. <laughs> yeah. God, can you show me how to This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. Jason Porterfield, welcome to the All at Once podcast, my friend. Thanks, Kelly. I'm really excited to be here. It's an honor. When I was in the beginning stages of this podcast, Jason, I don't know if you remember this, but after youth group one night, I was doubting my purpose. I wanted to quit. Everything was too difficult. The risks were too costly. And I told you that because I know you were kind of walking this similar path with your book and you said something like, but you have to. The world needs to hear your story. It's too powerful. And that motivated me to press back into work. And I will never forget that. Wow. I'm so, thanks for sharing that. I, I hadn't remembered that, but I'm so thankful you did. The first season, just so impactful for my own life. So oh, I'm so glad you're doing this. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. And if you don't remember, but Jason's wife, Dr. Laura Porterfield, shared with us in season one. And she also co-preached with me on Mother's Day, which was my first time ever delivering a sermon. And when I imagine God being with me, when I do hard things, I remember that comfort and peace and strength I felt when I looked next to me, when we were preaching and saw Laura. I remember what that felt like as we preached together. Laura and Jason are tangible people I look to on earth to remember how God sees me, delights in me, weeps with me and comes alongside me to encourage me when I do hard things. What Jason and I are kicking off season two with is a chat about the concept of power. What is power? How Jesus encountered power, what he did with his own power and how we see that playing out in American church culture today. Jason is writing a book titled fight like Jesus. I just learned the title and saw the cover. It looks great. You're welcome. And it looks at biblical peacemaking and gaining a deeper understanding of Holy Week, what that looks like. I've had the privilege of being a part of his editing and feedback team, 
and we will use the work he's doing there as a framework for our conversation. So Jason, write like Jesus. Why are you writing it? So this book was really birthed from the messiness of of ministry on the streets, not from the comfort and the solitude of a study. Mm. At the time, I was living in Canada's poorest urban neighborhood, a, a section of Vancouver called the downtown east side. Like many neighborhoods, it struggles with homelessness, drug addiction issues, a number of women trapped in prostitution. And so I knew all that when I moved there. I, I felt called to be a peacemaker, uh, which is to say I felt like God was asking me to work for the flourishing and the healing of this beautiful yet broken neighborhood. But I was young, <laughs> I was naive, and I hadn't done my homework. And so I was blindsided when just three weeks after my arrival, the trial began in a nearby courthouse for Robert Picton, who we would all soon learn was Canada's deadliest serial killer. So for over a decade, Picton would drive into the downtown east side, pick up a prostitute, take her back to his farm, and butcher her. By the time of his arrest, he had killed 49 women and fed them to his pigs, just one shy of his goal. Needless to say, my neighbors were devastated. I mean, Picton's victims were their friends. For many, the closest thing that any of them had to family. My neighbors were also scared. You know, what if Picton hadn't worked alone? What if there was a copycat? But most of all, they were angry because they had been telling the police for 10 years that their friends were disappearing. Mm. And there's no way, you know, we're going to be talking about power today and powerlessness. There's no way Picton could have killed 49 women if his victims had been women from the center of society, prominent mm. women. But instead, most of them are First Nations women that mm. most people didn't seem to care about. And so, you know, I had moved there to be a peacemaker, but I quickly started to feel like a failure of a peacemaker. My neighborhood's brokenness broke me. And one day I dragged myself to church with what felt like my last ounce of energy. And it turned out to be Palm Sunday. And, and like at most churches, they made it a joyous occasion. There's the palm branches, shouts of Hosanna, upbeat hymns. And I just couldn't participate. I was too depressed. So I decided I'll just open my Bible and read the gospel accounts of Palm Sunday. And that's when I noticed something that will forever change my life. In Luke's account, it says that while the, the crowds were shouting cheers, that Jesus was shedding tears. And while he's crying, he, he says aloud for all to hear, if only you knew on this of all days the things that make for peace. And I thought to myself, yes, Lord, that, that's what I want to know, the things that make for peace. That's when this idea for this book was birth. It's this idea that if I want to better be able to confront injustice, mm -hmm. to call out oppressors and contend for the flourishing of those around me, then why not study the greatest peacemakers, greatest week? Mm -hmm. And so that's what this book does. It goes day by day through Holy Week, showing how Jesus contended for peace and how he corrected our misguided approaches to peacemaking. I love the contrast of the people in church and, and the people surrounding Jesus were shouting and joyful and triumphant, and yet Jesus was weeping. And because we just weren't, we were missing it. We're still missing it. I think a lot of times I know that we are, that's why you wrote that book is we, we miss the point of peace. Yeah. If only we knew the things that make peace. Yeah. Sometimes I think, how did the crowd miss it? And then I thought, we're still matching the crowd's glee, yeah. not our savior's grief. We, right. We're missing it too. Yeah. Still, even though we know it, I mean, we know we can read it. We we've seen his observations. We have the, the gospel accounts that tell us what, what the difference is. We still miss it. And we still mimic those same behaviors. Last season, we talked a lot about complementarianism and egalitarianism, specifically in the context of marriage. And I like to maybe think of it more broad, more broadly than that, broader than that, in, in the context of relationships with the church and relationships with community. So complementarian relationships 
either in marriage or church or however that looks like, would traditionally be women are submissive and men are more powerful than women. And they are the leaders, the head of the household. And it's the men's responsibility to carry the load of everything. And it's the the women's responsibility, whether that's in marriage or in the church, it is to support the men who are doing the leading. And egalitarian, on the other hand, is where we're partners in all those things. As I've been reading Jason's book, well, simultaneously doing my work on the podcast, this passage of scripture keeps coming to mind. And I'm going to talk about this passage of scripture throughout season two, but it's from Philippians chapter two. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. These verses keep echoing in my mind and they get me curious about these power dynamics, specifically power dynamics in churches and marriages, because based on this, even if communities believe in God-ordained male headship and female submission, if the men are trying to be like Jesus in these relationships, wouldn't their marriages and churches still look egalitarian? Because if we're looking like Jesus, that means the one with power would give the opportunities for power away. Males who are within these communities who very adamantly defend that God put them in charge and that women must serve and submit to them, I, I think they've got it wrong. Like the crowd who was shouting for joy while, while Jesus was, was weeping, I think, I think we're missing it. Because like Jesus, they wouldn't consider that power something to be grasped at or defended or protected. They would use that power just like Jesus did. And, and that looks like raising up those with less power, amplifying their voices and submitting your power to the people who have less power than you. And again, that would look like encouraging women, widows, children, impoverished, immigrants, every single person in the world to live their lives wholly and fully for God's glory to preach and teach the gospel, just like Jesus did. So if husbands and, and complementary and our patriarchal communities were modeling their lives after Jesus, those who have more economic power, spiritual power, physical power, they would strive to look like Jesus did. And that's really what we should all be doing, right? Giving our power away and sharing that power with those around us. I totally agree. Amen. Keep preaching. (laughs) (laughs) Jason, looking at Holy Week, what can we learn about Jesus, power, conflict, and peacemaking? And I love that verse from Philippians 2 that you quoted, just that that strong verb, grasping for power, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to grasp and hold on Mm -hmm. to, right? And one of the things I love about Holy Week is we get to see Jesus in action. So it's not just that Jesus is teaching us to let go of power. We get to see how he embraced the powerless and used the power that he did have to stand alongside those who are powerless and to call out those who had power. You know, I, I think Holy Week is fundamentally about uh, the clashing or the colliding of two competing approaches to peacemaking. So you you have the Romans who were in power doing all they can to maintain that power. Mm-hmm. You also have the Jewish crowds who are trying to grasp for the power they don't have, and they're using Uh, the similar means of violence to try to get that power. And then along comes Jesus, who could have used 
all of his power. You know, it says the crowds came out to meet Jesus on Palm Sunday because they heard he raised Lazarus from the dead. Mm -hmm. And so if Jesus had that power, you know, what power does Rome have over that? And so I love how Jesus, uh, quick summary, you know, Palm Sunday, he rides a donkey, not a war horse. On Monday, he cleanses the temple, and I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point. He sends out the animal sellers and the money changers. But what we forget is after that, the blind and the lame, said, it says, came in, and they mm. were healed. They were always forbidden from coming into the temple. Mm -hmm. And so here we see Jesus bringing in those who had been marginalized. Sorry, I, let's just talk about that because that's amazing. So I'm not sure I've made that connection before. So he drives out the temple, not because... Yes, because what they were doing was wrong, but more to create space for these people who've been forbidden from the temple to come in. So again, we see that anger on behalf of the oppressed. Exactly. And we, we, we love to overlook that. You know, mm -hmm. Christian history loves to latch on to what they think that the, the passage says that Jesus used a whip violently on people, which it doesn't say that. It very clearly says he used it on the animals and then the money, the animal sellers ran after, you know, the, their the animals. animals. Yeah. And, and, uh, but we overlook the, the cause or the causes that upset him. But in classic prophetic tradition, after doing a prophetic act, after cleansing the temple, Jesus explains why he did that act. Mm -hmm. And he, he quotes from two prophets. He says, uh, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. Mm -hmm. and, and in those passages, it's talking about how the temple was supposed to be a welcoming place for all nations. You know, the original design of the temple didn't have courts for the Gentiles to be corralled within and excluded from pious Jews. Uh, they were to be welcomed in. And also, the temple was making raking in huge profits. We have historical records from then where the money changers, just the surcharge they added to changing the currency, brought in enough profits for them to add gold plating to the inner walls of the Holy of Holies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they were charging huge fees because they controlled these two essential services. You had to buy an animal from the animal sellers and you had to convert your money into the prescribed currency that was only allowed to be used in the temple. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus decommercializes the temple industry and then welcomes in those who have been excluded. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful to see. I, I love that you talk that you said decommercialize because that reminds me of a conversation I have with Beth Allison Barr in season two later in the season about how profitable patriarchy is. And, mm. and, and I believe that patriarchy is rooted in power abuse, which is something we talk about all season. And because abusing power leads to more money and, yeah. and, it, and it's still tied to wealth. Power and wealth are, are so tied together. Yeah, well said. So let's, let's talk about Palm Sunday, where we see the crowd triumphant and Jesus grieving. You said Jesus entered on a donkey. What's significant about that? You know, I, the first thing that's significant is that he entered Jerusalem because Jesus predicted beforehand. He tells his disciples as they're journeying to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there. Mm -hmm. So he knew what awaited him, yet he didn't dabble in peacemaking from a safe distance. He immersed himself into what he knew was a conflict. Mm -hmm. So let, let's talk about the donkey, like you said, but maybe I can kind of unpack the crowd's actions first, because I think you have to understand those. So the crowd, they shouted Hosanna, which we think is a synonym of hallelujah. You know, it's a word of praise, but it's not. The word Hosanna means deliver us now, liberate us, we plead. You know, it's a, it's a cry for help. Mm -hmm. uh, the Gospels also say that they quote a psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add a few words not in the psalm, the king of Israel. Mm -hmm. It says they laid their coats on the ground, which is how you coronated a king. 
And they also waved palm branches, which we, we tend to think they're like those giant foam hands you see at sporting events. You know, you're awesome, Jesus. I'm your number one fan. <laughs> but, but they're not. They're actually a politically loaded symbol that reminded the Jewish people of, of the Maccabean revolt that actually allowed the Jewish people to gain about 100 years of freedom from the previous empire that ruled over them, the Seleucids. And when Judas Maccabee reclaimed Jerusalem and cleansed the temple, the crowds waved palm branches. So from then on, they would imprint palm branches on their coins whenever they got their independence. And they'd have battle cries like for the redemption of Zion on the coin. And so when the crowd waved palm branches, it was more like waving like a separatist movement, waving their flag. You know, they're waving them signified that they wanted Jesus to free them from Roman occupation. Mm -hmm. So Jesus knew this. He wasn't taken by surprise. Right. And so beforehand, he, he planned what I think is just a masterfully choreographed entrance into Jerusalem. So the donkey. So he, he waits to get on the donkey, it says in John's gospel, until the, the crowd have signified what they think he's coming to do. All those things I just listed. So then he gets on the donkey. And John tells us that Jesus did this. Thankfully, he connects the dots for us as the readers to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 which talks about a peaceable king. He comes like a peaceable king to bring peace to all nations. And it says that this king will remove the weapons of war from all nations and even the people of Israel. And so this is what the donkey signifies. And the timing and the location are beautiful as well. He comes in on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, which was the day when everyone would choose their lamb for Passover. And he, his path going over the Mount of Olives joins up with the path that the sheep would take from Bethlehem where they are supplied. And they both almost certainly went in through the gate in the northeast of Jerusalem because it's called the Sheep Gate. Mm -hmm. So Judas Maccabee, he got the nickname Maccabee, which means the hammer because he was so fierce in battle. And so what I think with Palm Sunday is, you know, the people thought Jesus was coming as the hammer of God to bring a hammer down upon the Romans and win them their peace. And Jesus says, no, I'm coming like a peaceable king by riding a donkey. And by the timing and the location, the route he took, he also signified, I'm coming like the Lamb of God. Made me a little bit emotional when you were just preaching there. <laughs> Jesus is just so radically different than what, what is culturally normal or acceptable. Yeah. I just am seeing the palm branches them waving it, angry, shouting, hoping for a hammer like Maccabee. Like that's the connection, right? Palm branches, Maccabee, we want you to violently overthrow and deliver us. And Jesus just says again, you're missing it. You know, like this, this is, look at all these, all the evidence I'm providing you to say, this is not it. Well said, yeah. And that's the good news. That's the gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. And yeah. So many times we intertwine power and patriarchy and money and wealth, all these other things that are not the gospel. We intertwine that with gospel truth. And when we look to the life of Jesus, which is what I love about your book and what you just said, when we look at his actions and we study Jesus, all of that kind of gets melted away. The impurities get melted away and gold stands and that gold is the gospel and that is Jesus. When I was reading this chapter on Palm Sunday, I thought it was so insightful how you wrote about Pilate's entrance into Jerusalem on the exact same day as Jesus. I didn't know that. Again, something I have never been taught or, or observed whenever I've read that passage. So tell me about that. 
Sure. So think about what Passover signifies. So Passover is the week-long festivities, uh, the whole most sacred festival in the Jewish tradition. And it remembers the time that God liberated his people from a foreign oppressive superpower, namely Egypt. Mm. Well, think of the history here. Once again, the people of Judea are being oppressed by a foreign superpower, Rome. And so you can imagine when the people gather together year after year to remember the time God won their freedom, they're also yearning for the time that God does that once again. Mm -hmm. The festival actually had a track record of inciting all-out revolt. So, for example, in 4 BC, a revolt happened where some Jews during Passover killed a group of Roman soldiers. And in response, the, the leader at the time rushed in and killed 3,000 Jews and canceled that Passover. So from then on, Rome said that the provincial ruler that they had in the region had to be in Jerusalem and had to bring reinforcements for Passover to ensure that no future uprising ever happened again. To quote-unquote keep the peace. To keep the peace, exactly. And so Pilate did not normally stay in Jerusalem. So when we read in the Gospels that Pilate was there, that should signify, hmm, he came, right? So Pilate normally lived on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, in a place called Caesarea Maritima. And so for Passover, he was required to be there in time for the start of Passover. He brought an extra, uh, we think, uh, double the number of troops that were normally stationed in Jerusalem. And we know that he marched in through the western side, uh, western entrance into Jerusalem. And the show of force would have been quite the sight to see, you know, him on his military horse, the soldiers, the the armor, right? And you can just imagine the crowds coming out to watch. And what I like to imagine is suddenly they lose their interest because a murmur spreads through the crowd and they start hearing about Jesus coming in on the opposite side of the city, right? Uh, He's coming in from, from the east. And, and so they just turn their backs on Pilate and rush back in. That's how I like to imagine yeah. it. You know, we don't have those details. And so it really sets the stage well for, for Holy Week that two competing approaches to peacemaking are literally marching into Jerusalem, the city whose name means peace, Shalom, Jerusalem. And so there they meet, and it's going to be like a showdown for the ages. You know, it's like egotistical Egypt versus miracle Moses all over again, round two. I like to imagine if we're following what you imagine, the people turning away from Pilate's riot to or entry to Jesus's entry that they're a little bit disappointed when they get there. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have a horse. He's on a donkey crying. And that's not exactly what I'd like to see. I mean, even now, if I were going from one person I admire who was giving a really inspirational go get him speech, and I went to somebody else who I admire more, and that person was just riding on a donkey crying, that'd be a little bit of a disappointment. And again, that we're getting it wrong. What we expect is not who Jesus is. Jesus is different. Often people fight under the guise of a crusade against sin. I've been thinking a lot about this definition of sin that I've been taught, which is anything we do think or say that displeases God. But I've been wondering about that definition and wondering how This connects to peacemaking and power abuse. And then right before I asked Jason to be on the podcast, our pastor, David Bridges, did a whole sermon on the topic of sin, which confirmed a lot of my suspicions that one aspect that wasn't emphasized in my upbringing is that sin causes pain. And that's what we see in the Bible is that sin harms and sin isn't 
necessarily the result of not following the rules, but sin is moving against God. Can you talk more about what it looks like to move against God? Yeah, I think a great passage or event from Holy Week that shows this well is on Tuesday of Holy Week, the most talked about day of Holy Week. Jesus actually returns to the temple after he cleansed it the day before, uh, which is quite the audacious move. And the, the temple authorities, they first ask him a series of beta questions to try to get his followers to turn on him. But then after he aces all of their unanswerable tests, he goes into a lengthy, he goes on the offense and he goes into this lengthy critique of the religious leaders that culminates in a series of warnings that we usually call the seven woes. And they can seem like a scathing list of woes, you know, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says over and over again, you know, you, you deny the poor entry into the kingdom, yet you travel great distances to convert one prominent individual. You, you focus on tithing garden herbs and you miss weightier matters like justice and mercy, faithfulness. So he has this really intense list of woes. Now, I think the history of interpretation of so many passages in Holy Week tells us more about our nature as humans than it does about God. And so we often interpret these woes violently. So anti-Semites have often leveled these charges against whole Jewish communities, despite the fact that Jesus limited his critique to a very specific group of religious leaders, Jew to Jew. Also, you know, religious bullies love to convert these, these woes into reasons to persecute those they disagree with, despite the fact that Jesus spoke these warnings from a position of powerlessness to those who were in power, to those who had the power to kill him and mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's What's amazing about these woes is how they function in the Gospel of Matthew. To to not get into too much detail, I'll just say this. Jesus starts his public teaching ministry with the Beatitudes. It's the first thing he teaches publicly. The last thing he teaches publicly are the seven woes. They function like matching bookends, and like all paired bookends, they face in the other opposite direction. So the Beatitudes commend the character traits of true disciples. The seven woes condemn these religious leaders for the opposite. They're they're the negative image of the Beatitudes. So you can go through those two lists and see how they're basically saying the same thing. I mean, case in point, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Hypocrites, you are blind guides, he says, you know. Um, So you can see that over and over again in the list. So what does this teach us about how sin is, is moving against God? My first professor I had in seminary, Dr. Gary Detto, quirky, short guy, wonderful, (laughs) wonderfully brilliant though. And uh, he talked about, he likened our experience of God's love to sailing. He loved to sail. And he said, you know, one time I was sailing off the coast of LA going to, I think it's Catalina Island. So I was going due west, he said, and the wind was, was at our back. It was blowing us straight towards the island. And he said, you know, everything was peaceful. We were moving at the same speed as the windswept waves, so the water just seemed perfectly still. There was no breeze because we were moving at the same bre- same speed as the breeze. Uh, he said you could hear the birds, you could feel the sun on your back, but they actually ran out of time, so they had to turn around halfway. Now, in a good sailboat, you can actually go against the wind. You can zigzag at about a 45-degree angle, and you rotate right at the center of the boat. So you just you turn almost instantly when you turn around. And he said as soon as we turned around and went against the wind, our whole experience suddenly changed Suddenly the wind is roaring as we fight against it. The sails are flapping. Wave after wave is beating against the boat, drenching them. They're cold. They're wet. Now, he went on to say, you you would swear that Mother Nature had just unleashed all her fury upon you. But the only thing that's actually changed is you. Yeah. And he went on to say, you know, that's what our experience of God's love is like. And I would 
to now shape it more into to the question, that's what it feels like when we are moving against God. God's love is not like those Hallmark greeting cards, that sentimental love that just says nice things all the time. You know, the scriptures say that, that God disciplines those he loves. That and, and so God's love is like the wind. It's always moving. It's always blowing. It's always pointing us towards God in a better way of living, the Jesus way. Now, we can resist that. And when we do, we might feel as if God has unleashed all his fury upon us. But the truth is, nothing. the only thing that's changed is us. God's love is still willing our good. God is still with us in that. We're just fighting it. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. fighting his love, which I relate to as a parent. Just yesterday morning, my five-year-old was throwing a fit that would probably win an Oscar if I had filmed it. And I held him. You know, I had to restrain him because he was starting to hit. And I restrained him and he was fighting against me and it was not good for him, but I was with him. And that was one of my finer parenting moments. I don't always handle it like that. I must say that too. Um, but I, I felt I, just when you were talking about that, that's what I was reminded of is just how I parent my kids and yeah. me holding him. My love is there, but he's fighting against it. And, and it still is directed toward love. Kelly, that, that is the perfect image because we, when we read the seven woes, we usually think Jesus is like some judge justifying why he's going to persecute these religious leaders. But Jesus says that he's like, when he spoke these woes, he did it so because he's like of all things, a mother hen. Mm. Like a mother hen, he's trying to gather this group of wayward leaders under his wings. And so that is the perfect picture for, for understanding the seven woes. During Holy Week, as he's living his life, facing death, really progressing towards his death through that week, what does Jesus criticize? Let me just give one answer. There's multiple. But let's go back to Monday when he cleanses the temple. We can get into what specifically, we talked already a little bit about it, what, what he was against, what he was for during that time. But I think it's really important to point out that there were a lot of institutions in antiquity that were unjust, mm -hmm. <laughs> that exploited the poor, that marginalized foreigners. Yet of them all, Jesus singled out the temple. Why? Now, the Gospels don't say explicitly, but I, I have to think that he did so because the temple, it was a religious institution that projected their image of God to the world. It was supposed to be the place where God was said to dwell. And so when they're exploiting the poor and when they're marginalizing foreigners, that unjust behavior communicates to the world that God wills such behavior. And so, so much of what Jesus criticized throughout Holy Week was the temple institution and the religious leaders that, that ran it. That reminds me so much of Sarah, our co-host's experience with her church when she went to her church saying, I am being abused. And they told her to submit and how disorienting that was because it felt like God was telling her to go submit and to continue existing in that relationship instead of rescuing, getting rescued out of it. And I know that well, we see what Jesus would have done. Yeah. I mean, I think if you love like Jesus, that story right there should infuriate you. Yeah. Why? Because it, you can see Jesus got infuriated in the yeah. temple on Monday. Yeah. His anger led him to an act of love. This also reminds me of how churches often become intertwined with the same things we saw the church, the temple in Jesus's time becoming intertwined with protecting their power, protecting what they know instead of washing the feet of those who are different from them or who have different ideas, protecting their power, protecting what they know, protecting the comfortable, 
and, and not embracing those who are different from them or who have very radically different ideas of what Jesus' love looks like. Often we see churches turning those people away, either overtly or in passive aggressive ways. Yeah. What is Jesus for? Throughout Holy Week, I think we see that Jesus is for the powerless. So we've talked about some of this, you know, when he cleanses the temple, he's for the blind and lame. It also says the children came in. They could be heard praising Jesus. The children had always been prohibited from the temple. So they're welcomed in on Wednesday. He dines at the home of Simon, a leper who had been ostracized by people. It doesn't even say if he healed Simon of his leprosy. The real miracle is the solidarity with the one who had been excluded. And then an unnamed woman comes in and does this beautiful act of pouring this really expensive fragrant oil over his head, a sign that shows that she considered him her king, but also that she knew he was about to die. Mm. And so she really becomes the first Christian, the first to accept his destiny. And then the, the disciples chastise her. They, they speak incredibly harshly against her. And Jesus right away comes to her, to her defense. And so we see Jesus once again standing with the powerless. You know, even Easter Sunday, who were the first people that Jesus is revealed to? Five women, at least five women. And then the disciples don't believe them, despite there being five eyewitnesses to corroborate this event. And so, but yet they are the first evangelists, the first to preach the gospel message, the, the resurrection. And so you see it over and over through Holy Week, how Jesus stood with the powerless and called out the powerful for the ways they were oppressing them. I want to talk specifically about 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, which parallels Luke 23, 34, when Jesus, while being crucified, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, 22 through 23, he says, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In season two, as we transition into this topic of power abuse within communities, and how that's connected to rigid complementarianism, a.k.a. the wife or women don't have agency over their life or their body. It's not pleasing for women to be angry or outspoken. We're going to look at how these views are, one, false, and two, a breeding ground for abuse. As we approach these in the upcoming episodes, I want Jason to spend some time teaching us a little bit about forgiveness and peacemaking when abuse is present. I even find myself questioning reporting my own crime to the police and wanting to hold my abusers accountable, even though I know I've forgiven them. It's just complicated. So what is this difference or relationship between peacemaking, justice, forgiveness, accountability, all that? This is such an important question. And usually in our churches, we, we don't dig deep onto this issue. Yeah. I, I know, you know, I'm part of a, a preaching team where whoever's going to preach in 10 days, we meet on a Wednesday, uh, gives their sermon and we give feedback. And anytime we talk about forgiveness, we have an in-depth discussion about we might need to add some qualifiers so for those who might be sitting in, a, in the pew saying, but my husband's abusing me. Do I need to, what does forgiveness mean in that context? But yet on the, on the flip side, forgiveness is so central to what it means to walk the Christian life. It's so inherent to, to the DNA of who Jesus is. And so you don't want to water down the, the beauty of, of forgiveness. And so I've thought long and hard on this question, you know, what, what's the role of forgiveness yet accountability? You, you asked it so well. So 
on, on Good Friday, like you said, Jesus's dying words on the cross, the first words, you know, as soon as we nail him to the cross and all the physical suffering, and if it was me, I would have cursed my yeah. executioners Same. or I would have been pleading my innocence still. The first thing that comes out of Jesus's mouth is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think any Jew that was standing around then would have immediately recognized just how different that was from the dying words that sparked the Maccabean revolt. We've already talked about Judas Maccabee. When his father was on his deathbed, the very last thing he said to his sons was, avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back these wicked sinners in full. Mm. And he was talking about the Seleucid Empire that had ransacked Jerusalem. And so Jesus' dying words could not be more different. And there's so much beauty there. And so for me, once again, this is the the beauty of Holy Week. We get to see, well, what did it mean for Jesus to be a person who offered forgiveness yet didn't just allow abuse to continue? And so here, here's the way I've thought of it. Forgiveness is meant to empower justice. It's meant to help advance justice. Desmond Tutu, he he chaired the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission after apartheid in, in South Africa. And he had this saying where he said, there's no future without forgiveness. But he was not naive. He knew about the atrocities committed. And and so when it comes to forgiveness, it's meant to promote justice. And so here's the caveat, the caveat that I give. Forgiveness must never be a cop-out to let injustice continue unabated. And that's what we see during Holy Week. So when when the disciples verbally abused that unnamed woman woman on, on Wednesday, Jesus just didn't, didn't say to her, you need to forgive them. Mm-hmm. He defended her. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you know, in the, in the temple cleansing, D- Jesus didn't just let their unjust behavior continue to exploit the poor and marginalize the foreigner. He called them out on that. Mm-hmm. Yet he's still the same God who also forgives his enemies as he crucifies them on the cross. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a, a simple formula uh, to, to be able to say in every situation, well, how do you balance this call to forgive with also needing to ensure we don't allow abuse to continue? But I, I, the best answer I can give is just don't let it ever be a cop-out to let injustice continue. And I, Mary Denise talks about how, which we interview her too in season two, and she talks also about this because it's so important, I think, for us to chat about because I have forgiven those who have harmed me. And I've held them accountable. Those are not mutually exclusive. Holding people accountable for their actions while also forgiving them is important. And I, I still struggle with this, though, because I'm like, but if I'm looking like Jesus, Jesus says, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. But then I think about, but they didn't know what they were doing. You know, they really didn't. The people who are crucifying Jesus were doing their job. They were they were doing what they believed to be right and good and people who abuse you are not just doing their job. They're committing crimes. It would be unloving. I think, for example, for Jesus to not have called out uh, the Pharisees for their unjust behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be unloving for Jesus to have let the the temple institution continue Mm -hmm. uh, exploiting the poor, you know, um, it's complex. It's very complex, which I feel like because it's so complex, if you struggle with that complexity, 
know that that, I mean, Jason and I have talked a lot about this and have done a lot of research on this outside of just this episode, and we still struggle to really wrap our mind around it and, and communicate it well. So if you find yourself in that tension too, just know you're not alone. You're in a really common place. That's great advice for your listeners. Yeah. Thank you. So walk us through the rest of Holy Week. What does peacemaking look like within systems of power abuse based on how Jesus lived his last week of his life prior to his resurrection? So we've talked about Palm Sunday, Monday, the temple cleansing, Tuesday, uh, the baited questions, and then him with the seven woes, Wednesday, dining at, at Simon the leper's house, the unnamed woman coming. Thursday, we haven't really talked about, you know, Thursday, there's the last supper in the upper room. And there's a lot we can see there. Uh, Jesus, going back to that Philippians 2 verse, you know, he, he didn't consider his power something to grasp onto, but he actually stoops down, washes mm-hmm. his disciples' feet, including one he knows is about to betray him, another one deny him. And then uh, a Catholic activist, John Deere, points this out, that, you know, uh, if Jesus had been a violent Messiah like everyone wanted him to be, when he took the bread and the wine, he would have said, this is my enemy's body break it for me. This is my enemy's blood, pour it out for me. But instead, he, he didn't do that. He made this, this beautifully nonviolent uh, statement of this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out to you. And then he goes on to say, hey, Judas, I know you're about to betray me. It's you. You're the betrayer. And then he lets Judas leave unharmed. And as Judas is walking down the stairs, I imagine we could still hear his footsteps. He turns and says to his remaining disciples, I want you to love others exactly as I have loved you. You know, when his love is being most tried, that's when he calls us to imitate him. And from then on, we see it in the garden. When the disciples, Peter draws a sword, hacks off a servant's ear. Once again, we see the powerless disproportionately affected by violence. You know, it was a ser- the servant who, who bore the brunt of the violence. Uh, Jesus heals that servant's ear. And then forever forbids the use of violence. Peter put the sword away for all who live by the sword will die by the sword. That's what the early church understood that to mean, that violence is never permissible again. Mm-hmm. Even before Pilate, you know, Pilate uh, says, are you the king of the Jews? And we think he's at, honestly asking the question like he wants to know the answer. But the emphasis in the Greek is on the word you. He's asking incredulously, you who stand before me, beaten, bloody, bound, you claim to be their king, you? And Jesus says, my kingdom was of this world, we would fight, but it's not. And on the cross, like we just talked about, Father, forgive them. You know, and, and then even on, on Sunday, uh, when he, he first sees his disciples, they're hiding in a locked room, they're scared to death. He doesn't walk in and say, you betrayed me, curses on you. No, the first thing out of his mouth is peace be with you. In fact, I think it was so hard for the disciples to actually believe that Jesus would forgive them, that he actually says it a second time, peace with you. And then he commissions them to go out and be peacemakers in the world. He gives them the Holy Spirit. And the one thing that Jesus says, his last words recorded for Sunday, Easter Sunday, he says that the Spirit gives us a superpower. And he only lists one. And he says, the Spirit will give you the power to forgive others, Mm. not violently hurt them, not to overthrow your enemies, but to forgive them. Very challenging words. Your teachings and your work, Jason, set up season two very well. We're talking about power abuse leading to sexual abuse and domestic abuse in churches and communities, the cause and effects of suppressing women's anger, 
the power of women's voices, the history of how the term biblical womanhood came to be, and how the versions of the Bible were written to uphold, certain versions were written to uphold patriarchal worldviews and to protect that power instead of looking to God and how Jesus encountered and, ins- and instructed marginalized people groups. We're also looking about how white men can learn from marginalized people groups and use their position to advocate well for others. And we're going to end season two by talking specifically about what all of this means for people of color. It's a strong lineup. It's a very exciting season we have. And Jason, thank you so much for being our first guest, our, our first male guest also for season two of the All at Once podcast. So if listeners want to engage with you more, learn more about your work, where should they go? Sure. So my website, jasonporterfield.com. And and there, in fact, I have a a free resource if they want a a short little PDF that's called 100 Early Christian Quotes on Not Killing. So they could get that. I'm also on social media. So Instagram, Facebook, uh, Instagram, JG underscore Porterfield. And Facebook is at Jason G. Porterfield. Um, Yeah, I would love to connect. And then the book Fight Like Jesus will be out in time for next Holy Week can't wait for that book to come out. Thank you for being on the podcast, Jason. Thank you. Such an honor. Thanks. Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. You can also support us by buying merch or sending us a one-time gift via Venmo. This podcast is time-consuming and costly, and we are grateful for your partnership as we continue this work. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director, Molly Bays is our social media manager, Taylor Diggs, our intern, and Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown, who loaned us a professional podcast space, which helped make our lives easier and more balanced, and also exponentially elevated the quality of the podcast. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs and Friendswood. They sponsor us. They're a great little boutique here in Friendswood. Check them out. Super cute stuff. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one, and her voice is beautiful. She's an up-and-coming artist. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thanks for listening.